you know, there's lots of infinities in math. And uh, for the for the identities to hold, you have to those infinities have to exist. But um, infinities are really not numbers per se. They're more my dad is bigger than your dad is expressed in um, to the point of, of boredom. That's where mathematicians stop is it's boring. So we'll just say that that's the rule. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor, and today with us I have four panelists along with a special guest who we will get to introducing in a few moments. First, we're going to do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, then go to Adam and Marshall. Oh boy, I'm right off the top. This is great. I'm Bob Terrio, and I am a J enthusiast. I'm Stephen Taylor, an APL and Q enthusiast. I'm Adam Blitzewski, just an APL enthusiast. And to finish this up, I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I've been a J enthusiast sort of a dialogue enthusiast. Now I'm the BQN guy and I, well, no, as I've stated before, I'm not enthusiastic about it. <laughs> and as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I'm a polyglot programmer, love all array languages and other languages as well. And with that, I think we are going to do two and a half announcements. We'll go to Stephen first uh, and then to Adam. And then we have half an announcement from Marshall. I just wanted to say thank you to the people who contacted me about um, my uh, book on uh, vector programming in Q and uh, working with me to um, improve their Q and the content of my book. If you feel like getting in touch with me and would like to work on your Q, uh, I'm sjt at 5jt.com. And if you're listening to this, immediately after it gets published, then you still have a chance to catch the early bird discount for the Dialog 23 user meeting. It uh, runs out at the on Sunday the 6th. And where is that being held slash when roughly for folks if they don't know? It is in Elsinore uh, on October 15 to 19, Elsinore in Denmark. With that, we will go to Marshall for his... Half of an announcement. Uh, this announcement is not entirely related to BQN. I will present it without comment. It's just information. Um, you may be aware that uh, BQN uses the letter double struck X in uh, both lower and uppercase forms, actually, for the uh, to indicate the right argument of a block function, so something like an APL defin. Um, when I chose this letter, it was essentially uh, unheard of, unused by anything I'm aware of. It follows the same kind of rule as the set notation, like real numbers, double struck R in mathematics, but nobody really uses X. Um, sometime between one and two weeks ago, I think, um, Elon Musk has opted to um, rename the Twitter service and the company owning it with the letter X. Um, and as part of this, he chose as his logo the double struck X. So this character has another use. That's all I have to say. <laughs> By this character, you're referring to Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> it's unclear whether he has uses. Maybe we will. I was venting about this before we started hit, hitting the record button, but uh, maybe we'll dedicate part of an episode in the future to uh, venting about the website formerly known as twitter.com and uh, the people involved with the wonderful decisions being made around this platform. But we'll leave it at that and get to introducing today's guest, uh, who is Raul Miller. 
Rawl is a veteran of the J programming language and has a long background with the language. Uh, I was notified by Bob that he's probably, I'm not sure if he's most well known for, but uh, one of the things on his pedigree and resume is that he taught Henry Rich J. And Henry, I think, is our most frequent guest so far. I think he's been on three or four times at this point, um, typically talking about the new uh, features that come in the J releases. And uh, Rawls also be, been involved in sort of extending the features of J. I think he worked on extending the integer type for faster performance, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, he's also a very frequent, um, I don't know what you call member or individual on the APL Farm Discord, which we'll leave a link in the description. We've mentioned it multiple times on the podcast before. It's a, a Discord server that has different channels for, I think, J, APL, BQN, KQ, I think all of them essentially. So if you have questions, you can go and ask them. It's one of the many places you can go and ask them. And uh, with that, I think I'll throw it to, to Raul. If you want to you know, fill in all of the gaps Take us back as far as you want and tell us, you know, a brief or a non-brief history of yourself, and then we can get into chatting about uh, sort of integer types and performance and floating point representation and, and things like that. All right. I guess in the format of your original introductions, I've had aspirations to be a, something of a polyglot programmer, but I definitely have fallen into kind of a J focus in recent years. If we want to go back in time, at one point in, in, in high school, PCs were a new thing and they were kind of like a fun hobby at the time that I couldn't really afford very much of. So, you know, in the back of a, one of the math classrooms, there was an ASR 33 teletype, which, you know, tel, um, 110 baud uh, paper tape type machine that connected to a county HP 2000 system. That was, that's about my era. Some people had already been working on APL at that point, but not me. And it was, uh, I don't know, logging town. After high school, I got into things like uh, I had a job working on test and repair for navigation equipment. So I have kind of an electronics focus. Also, some electronics in high school, and and over time, I've you know hit hit computers from a variety of different angles. Maybe not quite the focus that other people have had, but uh, at one point, I was working for about ten years on uh, search engines for in APL, legislative database, and after that, did spend good 20 odd years and doing media and advertising stuff like that and presently i guess i'm just kind of goofing off that's my history so what point did you end up stumbling across the array languages and specifically jay because i guess you're you're quite involved with that community i think i stumbled across array languages in when i was in college i was going at my beginning of my college experience was community colleges and uh one of the teachers there uh vin grinnell taught apl a lot he had every single department of the community college using APL in some form or another, English department, history department, music department, um, biology, everybody he had, he had some using APL some way or another. And he liked a lot. And he invited Ken Iverson to talk at various points. So I got to meet Ken Iverson there. And that was, this was actually pre-Jay. And then Jay came somewhere after that. It was, it was kind of towards the end, about the same point in time, a couple of years after that, that Jay started coming into existence. Also, there was I had some interest in K back then, but um, that was more of a Manhattan thing, and I didn't really have a job that focused on it. So um, I've kind of been with Jay for pretty much his whole life, or not my whole life, Jay's whole life. I was going to say, you must have been involved right at the beginning with, like, when Jay was starting up, that was Roger and Ken, and I think soon after that was Chris and Eric and 
other people got involved. Yep. Were you involved with that group as well? I had loose connections. I mean, I met Ken and, and Roger at, at a APL conference and talked spent some time talking there. And I think I might have talked with them a little bit about some ideas related to Jay. I, I remember pushing the idea that um, ASCII was a good thing for a programming language because it enabled a lot of communications that, especially at the time, you couldn't really do with a custom character set. Um, I remember talking a little bit about some things that maybe had to do with the parsing and some of the other ideas, but uh, I don't know how much of my memories at that time are my influence versus me being influenced. So I, I, it's not it's, I, probably a very interesting topic to delve into. And so at this time, so you so you discovered the array languages in college, and you've gotten the opportunity to meet Ken because I can't remember the name. It was Vin something. Uh, Vin Grinnell, yeah. Vin Grinnell uh, has basically you know, disseminated APL throughout all the systems and every single department. And at this point, like when you graduate, do you go and use array languages like for the rest of your career or does it, you're using other languages in your career and you're just sort of aware of it. And then you, you come back to it at some point or. It's close to that. Um, I actually, I, I, I spent a summer doing, um, when I was in college, was, I was doing temp work in the summer. And one of the temp places I temp for was Morgan Stanley. And I almost fell into an APL job there, but uh, didn't. I actually fell into APL before I got a college. I dropped out, got married, dropped out, had budget problems, and started an APL job that was Legislate. That was 10 years of user interface, where the user interface design was mostly around 3270s um, and workalikes. And then after that, I worked, started working for USA Today, which didn't use array languages at all. Um, and so that point became more of a hobby. And I guess in, in college, I had an engineering focus. I, I hit a little bit of mechanical engineering, a little bit of electrical, a little bit of civil, good amount of physics and chemistry. And then because of, uh, towards the end of it, I, I fell into computer programming as my focus rather than engineering as a focus. Probably enough about me. <laughs> no, no, no. So it's it's all about you. Uh, we've So we you basically did APL for a while and got the opportunity to meet Ken. And the conferences, were those during college or were those afterwards? No, yeah, that was... That was my attendance at the APL conference was organized and funded by Ben. Okay. For now. That's a, that's a neat opportunity that probably not a lot of college students or university students ever had the, the, uh, you know, opportunity to go to, to, to attend a conference like that during school. Yeah. We didn't have many other students. I do remember like Todd Rundgren was at the APL conference. A few other names that I remember a lot of people that, that were doing very, quite a variety of different things. So that's Todd Rundgren, the musician, Todd Rundgren. For those that have been uh, millennials or such and may not know the name, Todd Rundgren is quite influential in, in music in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And then after that, probably still influential, but maybe not in, in wider circles. I just thought it couldn't be the same one. <laughs> <laughs> and then so you, you said you switched to a job that wasn't using APL. So what's the the story of coming back to Jay and then... You ended up obviously, you know, working on on the J language itself and and starting to add features. What's the sort of the, the pathway or the story to to your work there? Um, I don't think I've ever really stopped using J since I never really started using J. It was always a kind of a hobby. It was a side thing, you know. That I never had a professional. Um, I can't quite say never. Um, there, I did actually do some consulting work in J at some point in there, but um, for the most part, my interest in J has been um, personal rather than professional. As far as getting into working on J itself, that was Henry had said, "Hey, 
want to do this? And I said, sure, why not? And I did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, you know, I mentioned that in, in your intro because Bob had mentioned that. So how did you and Henry end up initially meeting? Because it sounds like from what Bob had mentioned that you were the one that introduced Henry to Jay and then Henry ends up introducing you to working on Jay. So what's the circular relationship or story there? I've, I've always kind of been active on forums, um, computer forums and um, with Jay and the Jay email forum. And my acquaintance with Jay initially was just on the Jay email forum. And it wasn't so much that I introduced Henry to Jay. It's just that early on, Henry had some questions about things. And I remember um, since I had had a parsing focus and, and kind of a, a mental model, I was able to answer some of those questions. Interesting. And then so later on, after Henry had gotten involved working on Jay, he just reached out to you and said, hey, do you want to do this? Yeah. And you said, sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Cool. So tell us about, you know, the work or like the, the highlights of the, the work that you've done on, on Jay. I, I think in over the long term, I've kind of had a, a minor focus on documentation, maybe a minor influence there. But the thing, the interesting thing that we're talking about with Henry was the extended integer support and the, the rational type support. Jay's has always had extended integers, I think, or almost always. And the original implementation was as a, uh, basically a, a, internally it's a integer vector um, representing a polynomial where the value is um, 10,000 and the, the values in the integer vector are the coefficients of the polynomial. And with just a couple minor variations on that. And the reason for 10,000 is because that's the largest power of 10, which can be, is um, more than the square root of 2 to the 31 or 2 to the 32. So it fits nicely on even 32-bit machines. And you can multiply without having to worry about losing accuracy. And then you can, you know, fudge around from there to, to do the care bits. It's, it's, that's wasn't a particularly fast approach, but it was simple to implement. And when Jay went to 64 bits that, you know, carried that same, um, same representation, the, the funny bits on it are, um, you know, normally with, um, currently in Jay, we're using, um, libgmp and there the underlying arbitrary precision integer is an unsigned, unsigned integer. And there's an, a separate flag bit. And that that's you know that's the representation with with Jay's implementation it was just a bit different because every um, digit in the coefficient or in the polynomial would, would carry the sign you know, that 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 matches the polynomial representation and also they had a special value that they would throw into the coefficients for infinity so we actually had an infinity extended integer that was you know, buried in the representation and you never really saw with um, when we switched to libgmp. Which is most of my work didn't wasn't really supporting extended integers. I was just ripping out the old support and plugging in libgmp, which is you know a much less impressive feat than it might seem. Uh, the libgmp form doesn't have an infinity for integers, but um, we do have infinity for um, integers in J. We still have had you know that's part of semantics. So the way we I wedged that in was it's possible to represent infinity using rationals by having zero as the denominator. Um, and libgmp doesn't support that, but we just, so I check every, every time I pass a rational number off libgmp, I first check that it's not an infinity. That's that's a, maybe a, a quick sketch of, of you know, what the change was like, was um, take that polynomial representation, rip it out, use libgmp, which is a highly optimized um, way of handling 
arbitrary precision integers and rational numbers and plug that in. The hard, quote unquote, hard parts would have been stuff having to do with prime number support and random numbers. And um, probably the hardest part is the forms that um, 3, 1, 3, 2, and 3, 3, which export to binary hex and import from binary hex. And the reason that was hard, not really hard, but minorly hard, is because we have backwards compatibility requirements and uh, requirements for other architectures. So the export and import has to work regardless of whether it's a big Indian machine, a little Indian machine, a 32-bit machine, a 64-bit machine. And it has to also import the old polynomial form on the new machines because people write the stuff to file and expect the stuff, the, the forms to still import those old format extended integers. Is that changing its behavior with like the Indianness and the word size or, or it has to not change its behavior and get the same thing from the disk to memory? In, in the past, it has changed its behavior. I forget whether I'm included. And I, there is a little bit of, of I mean, I... I there's a difference between um, 32-bit representation and 64-bit representation, so that's still there. Mm -hmm. um, I think I might still be Endian sensitive. I would have to go look at the code, though. It's been a while since I've worked on it. Yeah, so if you save something with this and you move it between Indian disks of machines, that might not be trustworthy. Oh, it's it no, it it, it includes a, a header that says what the format is. Oh, okay. So, so the total behavior, the header plus the data, always behaves the same. Right. Yeah. I think K does some similar things where it uses native format as much as possible with a little bit of, of overhead to let other machines know if they need to do conversions mm -hmm. and then serialization stuff. So one of the reasons that I had, I thought RAL might work really well on this is because hearing him talk about representations of integers and numbers and such, you begin to realize that maybe numbers represented on computers aren't quite as as stable a thing as you think they might be unless somebody does a lot of work to make them stable and and i've well i i've always thought that there's a, there's a lot of assumptions maybe not so much by computer scientists but a lot of people assume that a computer has accurate representation of numbers all the time and ideally it does but as soon as you get into some types like floats you start to realize there's areas that a computer really can't represent like physically, every real number. It's just not possible. Yeah, there's lots of infinities in math. And uh, for the for the identities to hold, you have to, those infinities have to exist. But um, infinities are really not numbers per se. They're more, my data is bigger than your data is expressed in, um, to the point of, of boredom. That's where mathematicians stop is it's boring. So we'll just say that that's the rule. Uh, and uh, then we, and when you get computers which have, which are not infinite, you sometimes run into those sorts of issues because uh, they had to actually make something that works somewhere, cut corners so that things would fit in the bits available. And so as a result, for example, floating point numbers are do not actually have the, you know, when you do, you can add floating point numbers, but they don't have all the mathematical properties of addition when you work with floating point numbers or any of the mathematical properties of addition really <laughs> it's not associative it's not a uh, commutative uh, it is commutative oh it is point point yes there could be some issues with nans i think it's perfectly commutative it is definitely on on finite numbers um yeah you're probably right you're probably right if you're i mean if you're going to overflow you're going to overflow either way so yeah so the annoying thing is maximum and minimum um there are instructions on the 
with uh, SSE extensions or AVX for those. And those are not implemented as commutative. They could be, but they just chose not to. Um, so the way they handle NANs is like, if you have a NAN on the left, I think the result is NAN maybe. And if you have one on the right, it's the thing on the left, something like that. That's frustrating. <laughs> Although Jay avoids this by not exposing NANs to the user, which is uh, which saves a lot of trouble. But it has indeterminate, right? It doesn't do calculations on it. You can import it, but you get an error if you try to use it. Huh. Yeah, that's one of the things. Sometimes people try and use NANs as a, as a marker, and they're always warned off doing that because as soon as you try and do anything with it, it's going to blow up on you. But how is it in, in K? Q, they use nulls, right? As nans are nulls, and every type has them, and they're used as markers. Yeah, well, for the integer nulls, it just uses the smallest integer. Um, and I guess the floats are probably nans. I don't know that for sure. But yeah, I don't know what you what happens like if you do um, if you do zero divided by zero in K or something. Float zero divided by float zero. Everybody pull up a K interpreter. Let's try this. <laughs> which version of K? Which which K? Yeah. <laughs> I've spent a little bit of time learning some of the versions of K, but not not all the versions of K and not a, not a, in enough depth. Well, many versions of K I think are just have not been presented to the public, so it would be very impressive to know them all. So in the KXK, uh so it gives me 0n for zero divided by zero. I think that means no, but 0.0, .0 divided by 0, 0.0. That's different. Oh, so, so that also gives me zero, lowercase n. So I think division always returns a float, no? So it's so it's, it's not like an integer. If I remember right, the zero uppercase n is an is integer null, and lowercase n is, is a float none. But if I do one divided by zero, it gives me zero w. Who knows? That should be infinity. That's correct. Is the idea with that that the W is the lower half of an infinity symbol? Is that it, or is it something else? Why omega? Oh, that's good too. That stands for wide or something. Like you need a lot. Doesn't stand for like keys to the wingdom. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 a wide integer. You need a lot of bits to represent infinity. But it uses the same number of bits. It's just the smallest. So they close off the the smallest integer. That's that's no longer a regular number right so that there's missing one number right and they use that for null there's yeah there's nulls and infinities for all, all the numeric data types so a general question i've got is why doesn't everybody use some form of extended and then or or, or rational if it's a fraction and then convert it back to float at the end of calculations because at every point you do a calculation with these approximate numbers, you get a little bit wider error. Um, and I know, it, I, well, I'm, I'm assuming it would be slower to use extended forms. I don't think that's the big issue. The big issue, I would say, is that rational numbers, sure, they represent fractions exactly, but the moment you have to take a square root, they're no longer exact. Um, or, or trigonometrics, right? Doesn't... Yeah, yeah. Trig, trig would probably be actually a more, more important problem, because that's going to show up like everywhere in geometry and stuff although that it's the the big annoyance with trig is is when you're trying to approximate zero after a few calculations yeah you get that little fuzz left over so 
I guess this is a different discussion. It depends on your use case, whether that matters or not. I mean, you never want, like if your computation is inherently doing cancellations and unstable, then you can mess yourself up no matter what you want to do. But as long as you avoid that, then you're good. Like if you're computing with real world input data, then your input data has an error margin. It's definitely going to be larger than the error margin on a double precision float. Um, so the, I mean, yes, float computations are going to introduce error as you go along, but um, no, it's probably not worth worrying about. It's mostly in banking calculations where you wind up with long series of plus and minus that you might um, have somebody pushing to be right near zero or something. But I think you've got a requirement to be, or I'm not sure how this works. I th I think it's required to be inexact specifically in the way that decimals are like base 10. Mm, what, what if there's, if there's three for a dollar? Um, I don't think you can do that. I think it's just, Oh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen this. <laughs> if you're actually working with money, you, you want integer value. So you work with pennies rather than dollars for US coinage. Yeah. So if you round off to the nearest penny, I mean, that's requiring fractions with the denominator being 100. And I think we had a stock exchange crash related to that issue. I asked some financial people that actually do like commercial financial software about this. They wanted more precision. And and in dialog APL we we have the option of switching for to 128-bit decimal floats, which should give plenty of precision for this kind of thing. Um, and I asked the question, why don't you use integers? Like why are you using floats for people's money? That doesn't seem right. Note that there's an actual type that exists in I don't want to say every language, but like you can implement it in every language called a fixed point type, which is basically the common like there's integer types, there's floating point types, and then in between is a fixed point type, which is a floating point type represented by an integer. I only know all about this because I had to implement it for an NVIDIA library. And like part of that was doing like a month long research of all the existing implementations and rounding behavior and stuff. But basically like you have a type that's backed by an int 32 or 64 or even 128 and you do all the conversions so like you store it as an integer, but like $1.23 is stored internally as the integer 123. So you never end up with uh, like the floating point addition, like the those problems. That being said, you still do inherit, inherit some of the problems of floating point numbers because sometimes you're going from a floating point type to the fixed point type, right? Like there's some conversions at some point that happen. And like there are some numbers that are just not representable as a floating point number, which... Well, like half a penny. Um, no, so what I mean is like there are specifically because like a floating point number... I should clear this up. The difference between this and a rational type is that the, the um, denominator here is fixed for all the computations you're doing. Is that right? Correct. Yes. You can choose any base you want, but like the base that we're talking about is a fixed point yeah. type with a base 10. And so, I mean, no matter what you choose, there's always going to be a higher resolution. Um, so you better choose the right base. Right. Exactly. But the, the problem I was mentioning isn't that one. Like, so definitely choose the right base because that's what, that's the resolution you're going to be stuck with doing your computations. But like within a floating point number itself, there are just certain numbers that a floating point cannot represent. Like it's impossible for it to. Yeah, nearly all numbers. 
<laughs> infinite number of numbers. <laughs> well, I guess if you want to do the whole, yeah, inf- infinite number of numbers. All of them, but a finite number, which is right. a whole lot. The finite numbers over infinity technically is means yes, most of them aren't representable. But like for your everyday calculations, usually it works. And then you'll run into like writing some test where you convert because you'll have like a constructor for your fixed point type that takes a floating point type. But the floating point type that you type in actually isn't representable, so it'll convert it. So, like, for instance, I remember, I think it's like 0.003 is not representable as, like, a float 32. So when you pass that in to the fixed point type constructor in base 10, you expect to get, like, 3 cents, like 0.003, but you end up getting 0.002. And I was like... Am I like, what's going on here? Like, I'm, I'm staring at the point .003 and then getting back a different number. And then sure enough, like the way I ended up talking to like a senior person that knows everything about everything uh, and especially about floating point types. And he was like, oh, go to this website where it actually shows you like the, you know, decimal representation uh, in binary or whatever of your mantissa and your et cetera. And then it shows you that actually 0.003 in floating point is actually 0.029999999. And when you end up con- truncating that into fixed point. Anyways, the point being is that uh, at a high level, fixed point exists. And that at a very detailed level, there's issues with this stuff everywhere, <laughs> no matter how hard you try to avoid it. Um, Limits, we run into them. There's also a website called, uh, oh, wait, am I supposed to say what the website is called? 0.3000000000004.com. We're not going to put this one in the show notes. You got to piece it together yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that uh, speaks about that explains it in very basic terms why why you get it. and then shows for many many programming languages how you can you see the same problem everywhere. Yeah, there'll always be numbers we can't represent. But yeah, about the trigonometric stuff, uh, NARS two thousand, which is an, an APL with all kinds of fancy features, uh, it has pi point notation, so it's eight times pi to the power of b as a native type. Doesn't J have this? J has base E. J has it as a constant. It has in, in its notation, it has it, but it converts it into floating point to internally. So it doesn't have it as a type. Oh, maybe NARS does that as well. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the same thing to me. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's not actually native. Maybe it does. Yeah, oh, okay. But it allows you to do rational numbers with it. Oh, uh, yep. No, that doesn't sound like the same thing anymore. <laughs> You can write one R three P one that that is uh, one third pi. Yeah, Jay will uh, let you do that, but it'll convert it to a floating point number. Yeah, but uh, do we actually need these things? Uh, yeah, so the bankers need need to make sure that people's money is right, and the the financial people I spoke with, they said that you end even if we try to scale things to the to pennies, you still end up with things and prices that are that are off and and there isn't enough precision and uh, for for these things advertising is often per a thousand so they're you know they're working in thousands of because advertising isn't worth very much they have very small point <laughs> that they're working with well maybe pi comes up like if you walk in a perfect circle around the new york stock exchange yeah um some some currency related pi thing should happen right <laughs> and you need to be able to represent that um and one thing where it comes up, I, I remember seeing this. I, I was, I used to to play Kerbal Space Program from fairly early days when it was, uh, 
it wasn't very well uh, implemented yet, hadn't fixed bugs and so on. And they had it's it's a a, a space craft simulator and you have the spacecraft in orbits it doesn't do like n body uh, th physics so things are just in elliptical orbits and it computes the orbits you know you have the time and then you have the orbital parameters and computes where you are and if you go far enough out from your origin point in orbit fun stuff starts to happen because floating point issues right when you when you multiply floating point errors with astronomical distances then you start feeling your spacecraft jumping. Yeah, I'm sure NASA has a bunch of interesting limit problems that we don't even think about. No, I think NASA doesn't have this. Well, no, they do. They they've just dealt with it in various ways. No, yeah, and I I think I read about about that. Uh, no, it only comes up in simulation. It doesn't come up in the real world because the real world isn't precise enough that you actually need to make this kind of computations. We always need to make course corrections because we cannot make things precise enough. Well, they they don't they aren't simulating, of course, at NASA, but they do have all these bodies that they're tracking, and they have to have a, a variety of arcane techniques to to make sure that they have reasonable accuracy. I I don't think so. I think our measurements it doesn't there's nothing we can do observing uh, orbital parameters of things yeah. to, where our measurements are precise enough that the floating point numbers matter. I, I've I've seen the question asked. I don't think we even know like the rotation speed of the Earth that. Actually. No, I mean, just look at leap seconds and need to be needed to be adjusted like on a short notice. <laughs> Not only our knowledge of the speed, but the error bars on that speed in its actual value might be that large. No, somebody asked the question, how many decimals of pi does NASA use? There must be like some very large number, and they use some very simple approximation of pi because... They just use three. <laughs> well, I don't think it's quite three, but I don't remember. It was surprisingly few decimals. Yeah, like what, it's six digits or something. Yeah. There, there was a state legislature that apparently legislated three as pi at one point. I thought it was Indiana, but I'm not sure about that. That didn't work. But yeah. I think that's what I remember. But what I was talking about NASA... I meant the, the equations they use to represent where things are heading. The, 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 they, they don't have a floating point accuracy problem. They have a, a, a problem in representing equations. To, you know, they have the they have the n body problem to in spades. They have a, lot, a very high n for their their n body yeah. problem. That's what I was trying to say. But again, simulation different from uh, from real world. Yeah, if you're simulating anything that you've measured. Um... Then the measurement error is the dominating factor. They don't specifically simulate the way you might in like Kerbal Space Program. Yeah, if you're simulating theory, I can see how you definitely come up with this. You know, they they do have to put plan flights, which means they do have to know where things are going to be when they get there. So they do have you know a variety of issues that they, that they work with in various ways. Uh huh. So I just looked it up, and the the JPL, not the J programming language, it's the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, they use they 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 spell out the digits they use, but then looking at it, it's actually just the sixty-four bit float. Yeah, binary float precision. That's what they use. So probably not because they actually need that many. It's just because that's the value they've got. One of the first places it was sort of brought home to me with with uh, Jay was actually in a lab that Roger Hui put together, which was an idiosyncratic introduction to Jay, and I'm looking at it right now, uh, there's 10 lessons or steps in this lab, or no, there's 15 altogether. But at the 10th one, he talks about the Hilbert matrix, which is actually pretty simple. It's, it's just an addition table, and then you add one to the whole table. And if at that point you take the inverse of it, you get the Hilbert matrix, 
which if you do it with extended, is really actually quite neat and precise. And then if you, if you look at the lab, there's an equation that he can actually take that and you can uh, tabulate the number of primes less than n. So if you had an n by n matrix, if it's uh, 15, you're going to have all the primes less than 15 will pop up out of this process. Now, if you do that with an extended integer, it comes out absolutely clean. If you do it with float, of course, it's just way off the mark because of all the calculations and what it's trying to do. There's a precision in mathematics in certain number theory areas where this becomes really important because you're not dealing with the real world. You're dealing with concepts of numbers. And I, I find that's where I find J kind of gives me some leverage that I don't have in other in other languages or if I'm not working with an extended precision. I was saying there's a whole field of numerical analysis which which deals with some of those, treating some of those issues. Um, I do think there, there are a few num- newer languages that have pretty good access to to big numbers too, though, so you don't necessarily have to go with J. Um, Camilla Lisp is a newer one that's uh, got like all sorts of math functionality, so that's cool. We have a fun trick in, in Dialog APL. We have this... I think we mentioned it on the on this podcast before this implementation of what we call idioms. These are just phrases of characters after each other. The interpreter doesn't take at face value, but knows what it means and does something else. And and if you if you write asterisk circle and followed by a number, so that's uh, e to the power of pi times some number, then it won't actually do the math. It will give you a precise result for for Euler's expression. Uh, famous formula. So it looks like we have better precision than we actually have got. But uh, if, you, if you modify anything, <laughs> then it doesn't work. Yeah, that's a little scary. Now, is that the Volkswagen engineer issue where if you if you get certain inputs, you get certain outputs? Is that how that works? Well, be, having an exact way to calculate that is useful functionality. I mean, you could get it from sine and cosine, which I think is what it does underneath. Having access to the idiom is pretty nice. Having it be an idiom is, uh, I'm not going to say it's bad, but it's more questionable. It's it, There are definitely situations where you could have a problem with that. There's something of a spectrum between um, numerical calculations on one end and symbolic calculations, you know, maybe Mathematica or um, Wolfram style at the other end, and, and compilers being a, maybe a third point of that triangle. We have different ways of 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 manipulating the concepts that we we've, we've expressed in math, you know, and trying to put them in machine form. Um, and I think Jake tried to step a little bit, you know, dipped its toe in the in that water. But there's um, there's a lot of infinities, so it's a huge pool to to explore. Well, so uh, Roger Huey calls this uh, star circle uh, show off. <laughs> and uh, and if you do it with a large number, he calls it shameless show off. Uh, but he also has some a paper about it. We can we can link to it with APL quotations and anecdotes and uh, about World Maths Day. And uh, and then he writes in a little square bracket. Guess who did the coding to make this happen? So knowing where you want to go is kind of important. That's our, our use cases to to getting connecting the dots and getting anywhere with all this stuff. I mean, I, clearly, Roger Huey's uh, reason to do anything was that he should be able to show it to the galactic emperor and, <laughs> and make the emperor impressed. 
So the emperor won't just say, you're just shameless, aren't you? (laughs) Well, and that's even before we get into complex numbers, because they have an entirely different challenge. I think it's especially with ceilings and floors and stuff. Oh, that's complicated. Oh, that's, yeah, that's not precision related. Well, (laughs) there are... (laughs) There are some precision related issues with ceiling and floor if you're going to do it tolerantly. Yeah. That's a big topic. I remembered, um, I think this is closer to our current discussion. This maybe should have been an announcement. Um, Just a few days ago, I made a change to the BQN compiler. So it actually parses the numbers you put in correctly. (laughs) Wait, what did it do before? (laughs) Harder than it sounds. I mean, I knew this was a problem when I made the compiler at first. I didn't know how to fix it. I mean, the issue is that the compiler is all array code. Um, So it wasn't really clear to me at first how to make something that parses. It parses all the numbers in your program at once. Um, And I didn't know how to do this and maintain the accuracy. Um, Like you might think to parse a number, all right, you'll just go in order of the digits. And for each digit, you'll multiply what you've got by 10, and then you'll add the next digit. That's inaccurate. So what what we get is like, um, we got a report for BQN. Well, I typed in 17 nines, and uh, this number should be representable in floating point. Uh, well, it's not exactly representable, but it should give you 10 to the 17th. It should round up one. Um, and instead, it actually give, gave you a number above 10 to the 17th. It would round up further. And this is because of this adding procedure. Once you go past the numbers that are exactly representable in floats, which are a little larger than 10 to the 15th, then you start rounding at every step, which I guess we can get into and talk about how floating point numbers round. But you'll round at every step, and so this can give you the wrong result. So then what I did to fix this is I figured out, uh, well, numbers up to the 10 10 to the 15th are always exact. So this strategy is perfect for those. So I'm going to split off the last 15 digits and do it that way. And then the digits above that, I can't really do... If I did 15 digits, then I, I could get a number for those, but then I can't add it because if I multiply by 10 to the 15, uh, then I'm introducing a rounding again. So I've got my top number and I would multiply and that rounds, and then I would add and that rounds again. So that's also inaccurate. But what does work is to take the five digits above that because actually any five-digit number times 10 to the 15th can be exactly rounded because 10 to the 15th has all these powers of two, which are exact in floating point numbers. So I take the five digits above that and I add them to the 15 below that. And that way I can parse up to 20 digits accurately, which is of course not perfect, but uh, no programming language is really going to like go. You have to read thousands of digits to get an exact result for floating point numbers. Uh, and no programming language is really going to go that far. Uh, they're just going to... Actually, you reminded me of a problem I ran into when I was working on J and this stuff. I'm not surprised. The J comes with a huge test suite, and uh, a lot of which Roger, we put together. And uh, he was very careful at the extreme ends of floating point precision to make sure that they converted properly to rationals and to finite integers. And there's little off-by-one-bit errors that you can get with thousand-digit integers that I had to handle correctly to pass this test. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to, um, everything is so finicky that it's like you get it working and then you say, what did I just do? Um, the I was actually surprised the 5 plus 15 thing came out that clean. Like when I originally did it, did it I was thinking, you know, I just don't know a way I can do this with arrays. 
um, might not even be possible. But then I found that strategy. So if you have an array of fixed 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 width integers, you get some interesting constraints, don't you? Especially floating point. I have another example where the, where the precision runs out. Things are interesting. So a couple of years ago, we added uh, something called quad DT, the date time to dialog API, and it does conversion between uh, all the date time formats known to not humankind, but dialog kind, I guess. If you find one missing, let us know. Uh, and there, that ha that's interesting because some of these formats are uh, just counting ticks of some size from some time. And so an epoch that's called. And if they're using small ticks and it's a long time ago, or it will be in a long time, then you have precision issues. So that then things get interesting. So for example, we have something called J nanosecond time, which we picked up from J using the epoch of, of 2000, uh, beginning of year 2000, but it's using ticks of one nanosecond. There are a lot of those in a year. Um, and then we get all kinds of interesting problems with the internal computation. So internally, we have to store it as two different floats and combine it to make sure to maintain the precision and the... Uh, Did you handle the French Republican calendar there? Uh, we're doing everything on the proleptic Gregorian uh, calendar. So to simplify uh, matters. We actually had an interesting question this, this week as to what do we do about year 4000? And is year 4000 a leap year or not? And will will law change between now and then to make it a leap year or not leap year? Yeah, it's uh, so under the if you just extend the current rules, it's uh, not a leap year, right? Because it's a multiple of 400. But uh, nobody's claiming. Yeah. So the, the problem is that it would calendar would be slightly better if we had a 4000 year ex exception rule. Yeah. Um, just like and it fits nicely into the pattern. I'd say extend the pattern and go with it. If you're wrong, it'll be a while before anybody notices. Um, yeah, it's true. But the problem is that that we're trying to convert between all these different daytime formats. And then there's a, a Microsoft GUI element called the datetime picker, which allows you to select any date up to year 9999. So now, how do we deal with those dates? <laughs> it, it turns out that that our calendar is interesting because of issues, right? Things are not precise. Like we're talking about these astronomical measurements and then nothing is precise. And it's it's all one giant mess. And the and the calendar we're assuming our calendar is uh is fixed, like like trying to approximate so that equinoxes, solstices end up in the right locations, but that's not the case at all. The 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 Gregorian calendar is made to for best approximation so that Easter ends up in the right place. But because of Earth's elliptical orbit and the, then and 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 everything is oscillating around. It's uh, it's a giant mess. Yeah, you get leap seconds when dealing with astronomy. You go back in time, you get geographical Julian Gregorian churches. Oh, what was that? I saw the other day that uh, global warming affects the spin of the Earth. Oh yeah, <laughs> makes sense. If you if if you ever sit on a on an office chair spinning and you pull your arms in, you speed up. If you stretch your arms out, you slow down. Okay, so if we increase the the temperature of the atmosphere, then the atmosphere expands, which is equivalent to spreading your your arms out and slowing down Earth's rotation. So 
So the future time values will depend on if you manage to stop global warming or not. Enjoy. I can't get the image out of my head of you sitting in an office chair spinning around. <laughs> <laughs> and NASA has to deal with that for every planet. Several other planets probably aren't warming at the same rate as the Earth. Oh, and things get completely insane if you try to deal with time across different gravity wells. For those that are interested, even though this is kind of, it's on topic, but off language, there was a talk given by Ben Dean, who's one of my favorite speakers and has been a guest multiple times on my other podcast, ADSP. He gave a talk uh, called Calendrical C++. Uh, I believe the C++ Now version by the time this airs, should be out on YouTube. I know the the notification for this premieres at is already up. And it's a talk that focuses on C++, but he even, he starts at the top of the talk and says, this talk is being given, you know, versus a couple other C++ talks. If you are here for the C++, please leave now and go see one of the other talks. I won't be offended because although there is a substantial amount of C++ in this talk, it's primarily a talk about the history of calendars. And he goes all the way back to like, you know, before BC times and, you know, talks about the first calendar all the way to the Julian and Gregorian calendars and how a lot of the motivation for different uh, calendar types came up uh, because of how to calculate Easter um, because, you know, religion's a large part of our history. And, um, you know, back when they didn't have SMS and emails and whatnot, like knowing when to celebrate Easter was like a pretty big deal because if you celebrated it on the wrong day, it was considered like you were not, uh, you know, worshiping the Lord and Savior enough. Anyways, it's very, very interesting. Um, and it touches on all this stuff. And I think it even touches on the fact that we are we are now in the Gregorian calendar days, but there is actually this other type of calendar that is technically a little bit uh, truer when it comes time to, you know, the year 4000, etc. Um, and uh, anyways, very fascinating. Link will be in the show notes, even if you don't like C++ or don't know it. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic talk. And uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, you know how much complexity there is. And it's all, you know, in this standardized library in C++ called Chrono. So at the end of the talk, he's showing how you can calculate, you know, oh, when is based on the moon cycles, if we define these, you know, types, you can do all these calculations in terms of moons. And can we calculate Easter based on that? I won't ruin it for you. Go check out the talk if you if, if you want to see if it's possible. But uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of complexity and insert, you know, leap prefix year second etc uh, and thankfully i don't have to be the one to write that code <laughs> month leap months those are fun i will say it's very fortunate though that the the time standards we use they don't take into account the leap seconds so if people say like a standard time format and the one i use for everything in bqn is um what you would generally describe as seconds since the unix epoch but you leave the leap seconds out and so that way, there's exactly 24 hours to the day every day. So this is one thing you actually can do computations on. And um, I mean, if your if your timestamp is during a Unix during a leap second, you've I don't remember what happens exactly. You may need to consider this. So and, and the distance between two timestamps, you might be off by a second if there's a leap second between them. But it's pretty nice being able to say. Well, you know, this number of seconds since the Unix epoch means it's on this day and this time during the day. 
Um, so sometimes there's a little bit of sanity floating around in all the chaos. Well, the, the simplifications are very handy. It's just when you run it, when you get into the details, you run into the cases where you have to be aware that they are simplifications. Yeah. Um, deal with that somehow. But fortunately, I think for practical use, this second sense, the Unix epoch is, uh, it covers a whole lot of use cases without really worrying about those details. So coming back a little bit to the, the topic here, um, Raul, you mentioned that you haven't used J really professionally, but for your own things, I would love to hear what have you used it for? There must be fun things then since you weren't paid to do it. Yeah, I goof off a lot. And, and I, when I said I haven't used it professionally, that's a little bit of a lie because I did put, do a couple uh, consulting job where I, I was working for Skip Cave. He was analyzing a bunch of audio files, a few terabytes of them. And uh, a lot of that happened in J. Um, we're mostly just classifying it. So it was parsing XML and um, computing um, SHA sums and building a database of things to uh, for audio files. So that that is one of the things I've used J for. I, I use J as a calculator. I use it um, to build little editors. To um, I can't say that there's a, any single purpose there. Um, at one point, um, you know, I, I did some cryptography work with it. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's no real theme I, that I can really pin down here because it depends on what my focus was at the time and my focus on or time changes. I've built parses with it. I, I spent a fair amount of time populating Rosetta code with J examples. One of the big things uh, Rawls doing right now is is he's involved with the whole J Wiki uh, <laughs> endeavor, which is um, much appreciated because Rawls brings a lot of expertise to it and, and history and background. But that takes up of a fair chunk of time. Although I think it's uh, there there have been times when he's been very interested in certain aspects of it and things have moved ahead very quickly and it's quite apparent if he if he's not interested then uh somebody else may want to go do that because it's not going to happen as quick but i'm guilty of that as well if i'm i'm interested in an area i'll develop it a bit more and if i'm not um it's a wiki somebody else can go in and change it um but that's you know that's just the nature of being involved in something that big but i know Raul is spending a fair amount of time uh, in different areas of that working. And, and um, I think he probably sells short maybe his uh, influence on the community and his uh, providing of information either in forums or in other ways through the wiki of documentation and, and expl uh, explaining different concepts and stuff because he does that really quite well. Maybe a, a good question to end on, as I just realized this, is you are... I don't know how many people out there have more than a decade plus experience in both APL and J, but it sounds like you're definitely on that list because you, you started off doing APL and then later on switched to J. Um, so I'm, I'm always curious in with folks that have experience in multiple of these array languages, what are the you know biggest differences that you found and things that you liked about, you know, one that the other didn't have vice versa in terms of we like one of the top questions we get from not necessarily folks that are super experienced that are listening to this podcast, but a, a lot of folks that listen to this and get interested, they always ask, you know, what's the one I should start on for doing X or Y. Um, and so I think, you know, highlighting some of the differences, some of our listeners are definitely, including myself would love to hear your personal thoughts on that. It's really, I think if I was going to advise somebody to pick one or the other, I'd say, 
you know, look at the community that they're interacting with and see which community fits, you know, which where they can find that community in the APL side of things or on the J side of things and make your decisions based on that. That's where I think I would go if I was giving that kind of advice. Yeah, that's a great, great piece of advice. I can't remember where, where I heard recently. I think it was on a podcast. I mean, even if I didn't think that, it probably wasn't a podcast where someone was talking about Zig versus Rust and they had implemented, I think it was a shell or some kind of command line thing to replace Bash or Zush or all that, all the different flavors that you have, New Shell now. And one of the questions was, was, why did you choose Zig versus Rust? And their answer would basically boil down to, I went to Rust, tried it, and I had also tried Zig a little bit, and I just liked the Zig community better. I just liked the things that they were talking about and the problems they were solving. And uh, he said because it was a personal project that he just, you know, it's up to him, and he thought he would be happier interacting with that community. Which so that's sound kind of sounds similar to your advice is just find the community that you feel like you click with best, and and you're going to be spending a lot of time on persistence issue, you know, digging through, finding the little technical problems. So having a community you can fall back on is sometimes a nice sanity, bit of sanity, fresh air there. Yeah, yeah, especially too, uh, you know, interacting with that community is going to influence, you know, your experience of of you know, using that language as well. I mean, some people have the opinion that uh, ecosystem and community is less important, but uh, then like the language itself. But in my opinion, I think that like, if you look at Rust, um, you know, regardless of that other person liking the Zig community better, like I think Rust is part of the reason they've been so massively successful, even only having started like a decade ago is they've put so much effort into building a community and like an onboarding experience that is just super nice where you don't know what you're doing. You type something and then the compiler tells you, Oh, did you mean this? And you're like, well, I don't know, but maybe there also are, you know, strong um, domain differences between different languages. You know, different languages have areas of focus where they, they excel and you might want to be picking a language off of that. It's just that in the context of APL versus J that, they that those differences aren't the sort of thing a beginner usually has in mind. That's why I would focus on the community there. There, there, you know, there are there are reasons to pick a line. Right, right. Like, yeah, if it's between JavaScript and and you know Rust or something like that, there's major differences uh, between those. But when it's sort of in the same ballpark, yeah, that's a great point. Is that uh, it's less important in terms of what the language is capable of because it's roughly the same thing. Um, all right, before we. Throw it over to Bob. Any final questions from from any of the other panelists? Don't say complex numbers. <laughs> <laughs> we need another episode or five to or Gaussian integers. <laughs> and I, I guess actually one thing is to note, I, and implicitly maybe we've mentioned this, but uh, is J the only language that has support for extended integer integer types? Is there any other array language that... It's the only one of the big implementations. But like I said, there's stuff like Camilla Lisp. Um, I meant, yeah, I meant more in the Iversonian camp of like APL, KQ. Um, I think there are even some K implementations um, that give you access. Like there's the one in Go by KTYE. I think that one has extended precision numbers. Um, so they're not as hard to come by as they used to be because a lot of the implementation languages are now offering them too. Right. Um, April should have them because it's based on Lisp. Well, 
if you are looking for extended extended injured types, check out Jay. Adam, what were you going to say? Well, NARS 2000. It's a proper APL, open source, free thing. It has some problems running on the Linux. I'm sorry. And I'm not sure. Somebody should try if it can be run on the wine or not. We should. We should. I'm not sure if it's worth a whole episode. But right when, because this already came up too, it was like, which K, which APL? And that was also one of the reasons, you know, that uh, Raul pointed out was, you know, there's there's one J, right? Like there's different versions which you grab, but like there's one main implementation. And I wonder if it's worth, yeah, chatting about that in a future episode of like the proliferation of the APLs and Ks. Does that hurt the success? Because the thought in my head was that part of the reason, and no one's, no one's, if anyone guesses what I'm about to say, let let us know. Email Bob <laughs> if you can predict what I'm about to say. Is this? It makes me think of why chess is popular and Scrabble is much less popular, and it's because Scrabble in the Scrabble community there's a uh, bifurcation of communities because there's two main word lists there's the Collins scrabble word list csw and then there's the north american word list nwl and they can't agree on like what is the official scrabble list so at every like tournament at the elite professional level they've got like two sub tournaments going on or they only have one tournament and if you operate with a csw the collins word list you can't compete in that because nwl is smaller and you're not familiar with that word list and and like in my opinion if the scrabble people could just get over themselves choose one dictionary <laughs> and there's technically a third one that's the official players uh dictionary that you buy in stores that one's even different than those two they just need to get on the same page because i think like it, it hurts the community like people that are just casual scrabble players don't really want to you know oh is it collins is it nwl is it ospd see i didn't and, even uh, know about anyways. this and i've definitely played scrabble games where we've looked up words i don't have any idea what list we used so i'm not convinced it's a problem if you google it you'll end up at ospd which is the uh, official scrabble player dictionary but that is not used in tournaments that's a subset of the nwl which is different than what they use globally and mostly in the uk you know does it matter maybe stay stay tuned for episode 81 where we run out of topics and then we talk about aplk proliferation yeah, were you going to say something wrong? Oh, linguistics drift is is just one of those annoying things that people do. Um, but there's um, even chess has has variations variants that people do. It's just that um, yeah, but there's an official established yeah, set. Official. Yeah, I feel like are you talking about the the different versions in terms of classical versus bullet, or like the ones where they change the rules of the game? The ones where they change the rules of the game. Yeah, I've I've I feel like chess though it's like. 95% is the main one. And then the 5%, they just are starting to try and make things interesting because people argue who's actually the best chess player. And it's all about memorizing openings and things. And when you slightly tweak the rules, it adds more like less stored knowledge. So it's like, oh, well, we know they're going to use the, you know, something opening. And, and so this person is going to try and keep them from doing that. Whereas if you change the rules and it's like, it's all just like based on mental power and, uh, yeah, it's less like the community is split in half. Sorry, Bob, you were... <laughs> well, I was going to say, if, if you predicted that the conversation was going to take that turn, then I definitely want you <laughs> to send a message to contact at com because you have powers that I would... I think every, anybody would treasure, so... Don't, send, don't just send a message. Send us our next Arraycast <laughs> episode, and then we don't have to record it. <laughs> 
I, and whatever it is you're taking, let us know where you can get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it, is it available on Amazon.ca? Because uh, I would like some too, please. <laughs> In any case, the Raycast. Uh, contact at arraycast.com is how you get in touch with us if you want to let, drop us an email. Uh, show notes will be on the show, and um, I think that's it. I, I One thing I would say is I think community always is important, and that's one of the things that I think that the this podcast manages to do is bring different communities together and different people with different points of view, and I think that's one thing that um, a lot of people have replied, that they do appreciate the, the different approaches people have to some of these ideas because they're... Uh, if you think just trying to match a computer to the real world, which is kind of what we were talking about today, that can get way more interesting than you think it could possibly be. Absolutely. All right. With that, we'll say thank you so much, Raul, for coming on. This was a blast of a conversation, and hopefully our, our listeners listeners will agree. And uh, hopefully maybe sometime in the future we'll, we'll have you back again to talk about uh, what you've been working on since the last time we've had you on, uh, all things Jay. And, I'll have uh, to work on something. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you come on, you come on a podcast, and you end up with homework. Uh, you know, that's what happens. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.